Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Switch your home to Sky Broadband today. See sky.ie for more. Hello and welcome to Inside Politics, the weekly and sometimes more than weekly politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Pat Leahy. The cost of living, rampant inflation and the squeeze on people's incomes continues to dominate politics. The coalition government is under fierce political pressure, and some of that pressure comes from within, to bring forward a fresh package of measures which would give people money and or try to reduce the costs that they face in heating their homes, feeding their families, travelling to work and generally living their lives. But the Taoiseach and his ministers publicly insist, most of the time anyway, that there will be no further interventions until the October budget. That position is not likely to get any easier to maintain. So to discuss all this, I'm joined this morning by my colleagues on the political team, Jack Horgan-Jones and Jennifer Bray. Good morning, colleagues. Good morning. Good morning, Pat. And I'm delighted to say by our economics correspondent, Owen Burke-Kennedy. Good morning, Owen. Good morning. Jen, one story all over the place this morning. Pay rises for top earners. Richard Boyd Barrett, I see, was out earlier declaring that this was a slap in the face for ordinary workers. It is a bit of a nightmare for the government. They're going to have to pay the highest earners in the public service the restoration of their FEMPI cuts of over a decade ago. And that's going to happen from next Friday or Friday week. And it's going to mean pay rises of, you know, up to 15%. So 10, 20,000 euros, maybe more for, for some of these guys at a time when the government is trying to hold the line on postponing any further cost of living measures until uh, October, or the October budget. So it's a bit of a nightmare for the government. Yes, it was with impeccable timing that this story came out, really, because um, the government and, and senior ministers have been flat out kind of get, trying to get the message across that there's going to be no interventions on the cost of living until the budget. Um, and, and we talked on this podcast, I think, last week about you know, speculating about whether they would be able to, to hold the line and what kind of pressures were were existing. And I think since then, that pressure has just been ramped up. And then, of course, when you when you have uh, a story like this, it, it makes it very difficult for them. In a way, it makes their job harder to justify not um, uh, intervening um, over the summer before October's budget. And, and you know, what your story and, and the story in the front page of the Irish Times says this morning, effectively, like you say, these are pay rises of up to... 15% for the top earning public servants. So we're talking about judges, we're talking um, about, you know, consultants um, and other uh, senior public officials. And it affects around 4,000 public servants um, who earn above €150,000. And of course, like you said, this will apply from Friday, July the 1st, so Friday, Friday week. Um, now, it is important to say it is pay restoration. It's the last part of unwinding those pay cuts that were brought in in, in the financial crisis. Yeah, and all, all the other public servants had their uh, 
the pay that they had cut in during the financial crisis restored at this stage. This is the last 4,000. About 90% of them, as I understand it, are hospital consultants. But it's still a bit of a stink, isn't it? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, like you said, that restoration has already happened for other public servants. Um, what we had kind of in the last couple of months was sort of a bit of speculation about this because, it, you know, these are very much high earners um, and the pay rises they'd be in line to get are very significant at a time when the vast majority of people are, are really struggling with um, all these different twin pressures, you know, the inflation, cost of living, cost of food, cost of petrol, you name it, everything has gone up. Um, and there was kind of speculation that maybe ministers would hold off on this and that maybe there'd be a different kind of policy. Uh, but I think what has ended up happening was that there were fears about legal action. I think there were fears about protests. There were fears about new contracts that are in the offing. And in the end, uh, uh, it's it's going ahead on, on Friday week. And thought it was interesting that yesterday, um, Leo Varadkar did a press conference um, outside government buildings and he was asked about comments he made last week where he appeared to leave the door open for um, maybe an intervention in the summer in relation to cost of living. He was asked about this, you know, are you leaving the door open or are we going to wait for the budget? And he said, I want to be very clear, the only thing we have planned right now uh, is a, a, a very large intervention in, in the budget. Then this story comes out um, on the front page this morning, um, political, public backlash, and then all of a sudden we hear Leo Varadkar saying, well, you know, never say never, can't rule it out definitively, we'll see what happens over the summer. And I don't think that's a coincidence, personally. Yeah, we might come to the slightly different tone that some of the leaders of the government, some ministers are taking on this in a minute. But just sticking with the pay rises story for a moment, Jack, I mean, it's very clear, you know, the government doesn't want to do this. It had intended not to do it. There was talk of a review of top level pay that would uh, be the sort of the vehicle through which these pay rises were to be postponed. But the legal advice, we're told, is very clear that there isn't a lawful way of avoiding or postponing these. And it is, in all truth, you know, it's it's a different issue to the question of ameliorations of the cost of living. But it doesn't really work like that in politics, does it? It doesn't work like that in politics and it doesn't work like that in the public perception because what 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 the story has is very, you know, clear headshot. Um, you know, it, it, it travels because it's it pay rises for fat cats at a time when the government is saying no to everyone else. That's effectively the story in a nutshell, Pat, your story in a nutshell. I think that part of the reason perhaps why it might have proved difficult to kind of find some way to, to kick this to touch is because the majority of people affected uh, seem to be consultants as opposed to mandarins or judges who uh, may be more uh, open to kind of uh, political persuasion uh, on some level. Whereas I think we've had this wider conversation about, you know, uh, the retention crisis amongst um, medics and senior medics and, you know, the quality of, of care provision within the health service. And uh, I don't think that consultants are afraid uh, of of politicians or politics in the same way that, that other senior kind of people in the public pay may be, uh, or they don't feel they have to make bargains um, in the way that other senior people in the public pay may feel. So uh, as I understand it from your copy, they were getting quite bolshy and, you know, the, the interactions with the uh, the medics representative groups were were uh, fairly, fairly bellicose in their own way. So I think that may have played into it as well. And, you know, it looks like the government or, or more, more specifically Michael McGrath kind of sought to explore all the different angles um, 
but ultimately ran out of road and they're having to to kind of to bite the bullet in the full knowledge that it presents yet another kind of soft target and and the kind of soft underbelly of the government to um to the opposition I, I i think it's kind of interesting that that Sinn Féin perhaps haven't quite gone after this quite as hard as i might have expected just in the early morning uh radio exchanges louise o'reilly was on morning ireland on wednesday morning and was kind of saying they need to publish the the um they need to publish the legal advice underpinning it but perhaps not quite going for hell for leather but you do see as you say richard boyd barrett going for it you see paul murphy going for it as well so there's clear there's clear political vulnerability there uh, and it'll travel and also it'll be something that people do retain on some level yeah because i mean i was struck by the fact this morning that Sinn Féin haven't actually you know come out and say said do not pay this uh, because of course they and much of the rest of the opposition voted for this pay restoration didn't they they did, yeah, um, and it is one of those things that's that's kind of baked in and and legally baked in as well. So perhaps their their room for manoeuvre is is slightly more limited than it would be um, on first inspection. But I don't I don't I don't think that really lessens the impact of the story. You know, I still think, as I say, it's 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 a little kind of political fragment that'll jump out of the it'll jump out of the the bubble and people will um, will retain it because it's understandable. At a headline level, as uh, as you say, and that's when things tend to to really cut through. And um, own this is coming at a time in the wider cost of living debate to which this is inexorably politically linked is coming at a time when we you know we see that Ireland is what the most expensive, or the second most expensive. A country in the EU at the, at the moment? Yeah, we had a report um, from the EU's statistical agency Eurostat yesterday, which um, calculates just the difference in prices between countries on a given year. And uh, Ireland and Denmark had the dubious honour of being the most expensive countries in the in the European Union. So just to give you a flavour, on average, prices were 40% higher here than they are across the European Union. So... Um, alcohol and cigarettes were 105% higher. Uh, housing, as you might expect, was 88% higher. Uh, utility bills, 88% higher. Health cuts, 70% higher. Broadband mobile phones, 46% higher. Travel, 39% higher. And hotel stays and eating out, 29% higher. The only area that we came in below the European average was in clothing and footwear. So what this tells you is that just when this current cost of living squeeze is coming on, we're starting from a much higher point. And is the gap between, you know, typical costs in EU countries and what things cost here, is that gap getting bigger? It seems to be getting bigger and it's very difficult to pinpoint why prices uh, vary so much. I mean, when you're on holiday across Europe and you, and you wonder why you're eating out for half the price in Spain or Portugal, it, it, it's hard to fathom that we're all in a single market. And there's a notion that maybe, you know, we're an island, so there's transport and shipping costs, but that doesn't really explain it. Um, tax explains a lot of the price variation in terms of alcohol. But it's it's very difficult to pin down. And I suppose most people's notion is that they're in some way just being charged more because the market can bear it, people's incomes can bear it. And that's uh, a point that's always made on the housing front. So it's very difficult to pin down really just why prices are so much uh, you know, at odds here compared to other countries. And that tax element of it, that 
is of great benefit to the government because it means there's a sort of a hidden bonanza for the government. As prices go up, they're getting a larger chunk of growing revenues, right? Yeah, this is something that's obviously not really been pushed out from Lancer House at the moment, given the climate in the wider economy. But obviously, when people are paying more for fuel and various different things, the government's VAT take uh, goes up. So the government's uh, public, the public finances are pretty buoyant at the moment. And remember, on the other side of the house, uh, we're going back to full employment at a quite a rapid rate, which means they're getting more income tax. So what Pascal Donoghue probably doesn't want you to hear is that the government is in a reasonably good position coming into the budget in terms of a cost of living uh, package. Then there's also the contingency fund that was left over from the pandemic and is now being used to house Ukrainian refugees. Will that be used or will they dig into that, you know, for the cost of living measures? They're also going to come in at it with an end-of-year budget surplus that's much bigger uh, than we expected a few months back, so in the region of maybe $1.6 billion. Then there's a question of borrowing. Uh, borrowing costs are going up, still very cheap though. So they're in a position to do something, and then there's just a question of whether they opt for temporary measures over more permanent measures, which would get us into trouble up the line. But yeah, it's, 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 it's going to be an interesting one. There's going to be a lot of pressure, obviously, exerted on the government by October. And Jen, Pascal Donoghue mightn't want you to know any of this, but another member of the government does want you to know all this. Leo Varadkar was out yesterday saying that, you know, we've more room to manoeuvre for the budget this autumn than we've had uh, for years and the public finances are going gangbusters and we've essentially said we've got loads of money. Yeah, so Leo Varadkar was out yesterday. He um, said that, he said it would be a surprise to no one um, that the government this year has more room to manoeuvre in the budget than any year in, in, in recent history. I think some people probably were surprised to hear that, actually, given the various different pressures, um, especially some of them that Owen has gone through there. Um, uh, what he was basically saying was because of because of inflation and because of the effect that has had on, on people's pockets, effectively, the welfare package in comparison to last year will have to be bigger. And he said because the government is, is basically of one mind that tax and income tax should be index linked, that that will create effectively a much bigger tax package as well. Um, now, none of this is necessarily big news. We, we sort of suspected and knew that they would obviously have to go much further this year than they did last year. But if you look at the cost of the different measures in last year's budget, so last year we had in terms of tax, tax package, one of the biggest parts of that was an increase of, I think it was one and a half thousand uh, euro on the uh, the income tax standard rate band for all earners, and that pushed it up to I think nearly thirty seven thousand for for single individuals. That cost altogether that entire tax pack nearly six hundred million euros, massive chunk of change. Um, even very small changes they made to the universal social charge came in at you know thirty million euro. If you look at the welfare package that they brought in, it was a five euro increase in the maximum rate I think of all weekly payments. Um, I think that came in around 600 million euro as well. So if we're talking about, let's say, for example, doubling that, like let's say if they're talking about increasing the weekly welfare uh, payments to 10 euro, up 10 euro, you're looking at a package of more, at least certainly far in excess of 1 billion for that. That's before you even get into the realm of, of tax. So I think it's fair to assume 
that what we will see, and like, I think Pat, you made this point to me yesterday. They say this every year about the budget. It's the biggest budget ever. It's the most expansionist budget you've ever seen. It's it's everything for everyone, but without ever going too far into the past of, you know, something for everyone in the audience, because nobody wants to go back there. Um, but, you know, I, th- I think that that's what we will see. We will see a, a, a very big package. The only thing is, of course, they have to balance it against how do they do this without making the problem worse? How do they inject all this money back into the economy, into people's pockets, without actually throwing fuel on the in, in, inflationary fire? That's the big challenge. And that's why you have, I think, the difference between Leo Varadkar and Michal Martin. Michal Martin, I think, is kind of terrified of being blamed for long-term putting Ireland's situation that maybe was seen uh, in the 70s uh, with inflation where it was chased down. And whereas Leo Varadkar is saying, we have to do something now. He feels the pressure politically. They all feel, whether it's backbenchers or ministers, anybody at all different levels of, of government, they're asking themselves the question, is it politically feasible, politically feasible for us to wait until October? And maybe the answer is, we're going to promise you billions and billions. So hold on and it'll be fine, but we'll see. Jack, there was kind of loose lips, it seems to me, around government last week talking about the possibility of a package um, of further cost of living measures in July. But that was pretty comprehensively knocked down after the leaders the leaders of the three coalition parties met with the finance minister and the public expenditure minister at their pre-cabinet on Monday night. And, you know, there was some, you know, very clear and definitive statements, not least out of the Taoiseach, saying there will not be a summer package. We will not return to this issue until the autumn. And... Then we hear from Leo Varadkar this morning, who says there will not be a package in the summer, for now anyway, unless, you know, we change our minds, more or less. I'm paraphrasing, but he has had a different tone, I think, than both his party colleague, Pascal Donoghue, and also to the Taoiseach and the Public Expenditure Minister, I think, has he? I think he has. Um, And if you take a step back to last week, the intervention that really marked a kind of step change in the discussion about whether there would or wouldn't be a package of measures in July or before the doll rises for summer or whatever kind of time frame you want to put on it. The intervention that really was the gear change on that was the Tonishta. Uh First of all, at a doorstep um, in town on Thursday, he said he would, couldn't definitively rule it out. And then just in case anyone missed the point, he said it again in the doll on Thursday afternoon. Um, and they seem to have, and talking to government, there is talking to some people in government and amongst the other two parties, there is no small measure of um, of of irritation about this as well amongst some parties who kind of say that you know everyone had, and this is a conversation I was having with somebody last night, kind of saying that you know everyone had more or less committed to, to holding the line, to battening down the hatches until uh, the budget in, in mid-October. Um, and the Taunashtra came out and said this. And, and they seem to then have kind of really lost control of the story over the weekend because there was this um, interesting set of lines in the Mail on Sunday, which outlined, you know, not just the potential of uh, a, a package of measures or the changing mood music around the the likelihood of a package of measures, but went into quite fine detail. I mean, someone is clearly yeah, out Yeah, Mail's story this. had a lot of detail. A huge amount of detail and also was suggesting all sorts of things so that the headline measure was this Christmas bonus in summer. Um, John Lee of the, of the Mail broke this story on Sunday. The, you know, the government was contemplating or, you know, more than contemplating, was almost intending to go ahead with this Christmas Christmas bonus, double welfare payment in summer. But there was a lot of stuff in there as well about excise and fuel and all 
the rest of it, you know, stuff that had kind of been effectively ruled out over the previous kind of week or ten days by by Pascal Donahue, who said there was no there was no more room to give basically on tax measures that impact on fuel. Uh, so there was a great effort, I think, from Sunday into Monday and Tuesday to put this back in the box. Um, and then again, this Wednesday on, on Morning Ireland, the Tonster comes out and says that, you know, it, it can't quite be ruled out. So while I don't think there is enormous kind of wailing and gnashing of teeth behind the scenes, there is certainly rolling of eyes. <laughs> and there's certainly, you know, a wider thing there about, you know, one of the criticisms that was often leveled at this government, particularly during the kind of early days of its existence and in relation to COVID was that it had a lot of mixed messaging going on and that it wasn't speaking with one voice. So, um, And do you think that's the case here? Because it looks like it from the outside. I mean, it looks like that there is a, you know, there's a debate going on that may be periodically concluded, but always keeps popping back up again. But it's just objectively the case, right? Because it, you know, like you, you think you think it's stowed away, and then someone kind of says or suggests something, and it's not always in fairness. Uh, the tarnisher, like I, I have had this from other people in government last week as well, saying, you know, oh, maybe we're moving towards doing something. And um, meanwhile, I think as, as Jen has articulated very well, you know, the the Taoiseach's office seems to be very concerned about prudence and you know fiscal uh, stability and not return to the 1970s. And I think that that's a view that is certainly mirrored um, on, on Marion Street in the Department of Finance. Um, but it's, it, it's kind of it's thin enough gruel um, that you're offering, you know, this, if, if your core message is, you know, we're, we're responsible and we're custodian of the public finances and, you know, part of providing uh, welfare for the state is providing a stable environment for jobs and investment and all the rest of it. It's thin enough gruel when you are simultaneously exposing yourself to opportunities for the uh, opposition to hammer home its core messages, which have been really successful over the last 20 months or so, which is that you're indifferent, you're uncaring, you're out of touch against which you offer back. But, you know, we're, we're, we're fairly responsible with the public finances. And then that message in that turn is, is undermined by uh, some members of your own government. Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. Oh, and the argument that is made by Michal Martin, and I guess more privately from the finance side of the house within government, is that, you know, we need to be very careful. Any measures that are introduced, we need to be very careful that they don't actually fuel inflation. What's your view on that? Is it possible to introduce measures that don't fuel inflation or is putting more money in the pockets of people, which is at, I suppose, at heart what we're talking about there, is that inevitably going to have an inflationary effect? Yeah, there's a certain amount of inevitability to it. I mean, most of the economic think tanks and, and messages have been, you know, for more targeted supports and we, we've had that kind of hammered home and, and, and now it's been taken up as a mantle by uh, Martin and, and Donoghue. And obviously, 
you know, stuff like the um, childcare stuff, a lot of it is going to go into uh, the budgets of households that probably can afford to stomach uh, the you know, the cost of living increase. It, there's a there's a, there's a difficulty here, but I mean um, the double social welfare uh, increase proposal. I mean that would go for you know uh, is a more targeted measure, but a lot of it's going to seep out into the wider economy. It's a, it's a very uh, difficult balancing act um, to really perform to try and actually um, you know insulate households from inflation, and at the same time not add to it or add uh, more fuel to the fire. Um, in many cases, you know, most of the inflation is coming from higher uh, commodity prices, higher energy prices, higher food prices. A lot of uh, which is coming from abroad. So, you know, it's 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 very difficult for us to really tame that from our perspective. I mean, the ECB central bank rate moves now. Uh, it's it's questionable just how effective they're going to be uh, in the coming months. Um, if you look across the water at the UK, their inflation is at nine percent and predicted to go to eleven. Now, ours isn't predicted to go that high. But, um, yeah, it's a very fluid situation. And, of course, at the centre of it all is this, um, you know, war in Ukraine, which nobody really has a handle on which way that's going. And what does the certainty of rising interest rates do? And the other external threats to growth, you mentioned the war in Ukraine there. I mean... (laughs) I'm just wondering, like, how do they affect, you know, the public finances or the the outlook for the public finances? Because presumably we cannot have all these external threats, also the prospect of rising interest rates, while at the same time indefinitely having a strongly growing economy that Leo Varadkar is hailing as the engine through which he's going to give money away in October at the budget. Well, the economy is growing very strongly, and and I love to say this, but it feels a little bit like the quiet before the storm. I mean, if you look at uh, some of the predictions this year, we're we're getting um, inflation expected to average around 7%, and wages are expected to grow by 3%. So that difference, that 4% difference, is going to be the squeeze on real incomes, and that's where you're going to feel it. And so while we say the economy is growing well and you know tax revenue is buoyant, a lot of the headline growth is coming from multinationals. It's the GDP figure, which we all know has no relation to the real feel of the Irish economy. So, you know, the coming months is going to feel a lot like a recession for many households, even though the kind of headline economic indicators will tell us otherwise. And then in terms of the government borrowing costs, yeah, um, you know, the rate rises across Europe is going to increase the cost of borrowing, but we're coming from such a low point. I mean, in some cases, we're coming from minus figures. So even to rise up to... Uh, I suppose the most kind of hawkish prediction is that interest rates would would rise by up to 2% in the coming months. That is going to add to government borrowing costs. But remember, a lot of our existing debt is long dated and tied into lower interest rates. So there doesn't seem to be too much concern uh, coming out of the Department of Finance about that, even though there is the odd warning. And obviously we're like about third most indebted nation on the globe on a per capita basis. So you would have thought rising interest rates is a big kind of, you know, risk factor for us. But it seems like um, there's a perception that we've kind of got, we're we're able to manage it. And especially with, you know, our headline growth and buoyant tax revenues that we're sort of in a position to manage it at the moment anyway. But Jack, even if it's not a recession, if it's not technically a recession, if, as Owen says, it feels like a recession. That makes for very uncomfortable politics for the government. It does, yeah. And um, one of the problems uh, 
of the way the human mind works is that you presume the next crisis will feel a lot like the last crisis. So there's a, I think, underlying assumption that you know the, the any kind of uh, economic malaise that lands on the country will look and feel very much like the um, the financial collapse, and there'll be you know a lot of let's say uh, you know corporate insolvencies, small businesses shutting down, a lot of people losing their jobs, um, and uh, a lot of people building up bad debts. And I suspect, although I defer to Owen very much on this, I suspect that you know the the the, the nature of the challenge is shifting, and um, you probably won't get as many kind of companies emulating, and you won't get the kind of massive. Uh, hammer blows of big multinationals shuttering uh, large manufacturing uh, presences here, but you will um, get a lot more people who, as Owen says, you know, it feels like a recession. It feels like they're being pushed to the pin of their collar, um, and that presents a different kind of uh, challenge for a government which has kind of subtly uh, changed its more maximalist kind of outlook from COVID to, to, to something that isn't quite, that the state can be all things to all people um, and is operating against the, against the different kind of macroeconomic financing and monetary policy background as well. So it just, it means that there's an awful lot to balance come budget time to bring a full circle on, on what we're saying at the, at the top of the piece. You know, this is ultimately a, a discussion about budgetary type policies. We're just kind of, you know, arguing about when they might, uh, when they might kick in. Um, and, you know, there's a whole host of things that we haven't even discussed yet that need to be uh, paid for in the budget. We've, we've focused on tax and welfare, and Jen was talking about just how expensive those things can be without really making a massive difference to your um, to your paycheck at the end of the month. Like, what about things like defence spending? The conversation that we were having uh, in the first quarter of this year, and you know, there is a clear imperative to do something on that, and that's very expensive. You know, and not only is it the cost of 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 you know guns and ammo, it's the it's the cost of improving uh, welfare and conditions and, and and tackling retention crises within the defence forces. So there's a whole host of things things to balance, and um, I think it'll be very difficult to catch that falling knife come mid October or whenever it is we have the budget or budgetary type interventions. And amongst the things that plays into this very complex equation, Jen, is the public sector pay talks, which. You know, the offer made by the government last week of an additional 5% over the next 18 months, making up 7% over these two years, that was rebuffed by the public sector unions. That was going to cost 1.2, 1.3 billion. Any better offer is going to cost upwards, I guess, of one and a half billion and uh, government seems to be, Leo Varadkar again, seem to be opening the door this morning to an improved offer. Yes, indeed. And, and you know, uh, I think I was a little bit surprised actually to hear that because like you said, that the offer that's been made is a huge chunk of money. So effectively what happened was the formal negotiations for, um, to deal, I suppose, with inflation and the cost of living in the public sector um, because that that uh, effectively triggered a review of the existing uh, public uh, pay agreement. So what happened was those negotiations kicked off last week. They lasted a couple of days. Um, and what the government made were, were, were two offers of 2.5% supplementary pay increase in 2022 and 2023, respectively. So that was on top of the already agreed 2% pay increase that was already provided for. So what the government were effectively saying was we're giving you a cumulative pay offer of 7%. Over two years, um, 
And what they said was this is substantial, it's going to cost 1.2 billion for the extra cost and 2.3 billion in total. So that was rejected. Um, and what we saw then at the start of the week was kind of uh, both sides stalling and what, what, we're, what the unions are waiting for and uh, whatever and the government say they're waiting for is uh, an invitation back to the table. Now, it's not the Workplace Relations Commission who make that. They're just there to facilitate. It will actually take the government coming back with another offer, a greater offer than the 5% that they, that they have already put on the table. And the question is, will they do that and can they afford that? Because last week, some of the briefings that were going out from government uh, were basically saying that this is almost the highest that they could go because they were quoting the uncertainty in, in, in global economics, talked about rising interest rates, high levels of public debt, inflation pressures, and then, of course, the budget coming up and having to balance everything in a way that doesn't sort of tip anything over over the edge. What Leo Varadkar was saying this morning, effectively, was that there will be an attempt to re-engage. So the only way the union is going to come back to the table is if one of those offers or any of those offers are are higher uh, pay increase, effectively. The other thing Leo Varadkar talks about is the social wage. So this is effectively what it costs to live in the cost of services, um, childcare, healthcare, uh, housing, all of that sort of stuff. But that is actually being dealt with in a different process known as the Labour Employer uh, Economic Forum. And it is in that different forum where they're talking about the social wage, so where they're talking about what proposals might work. And, and all the government can give them, really, when you think about it, is an indication of what they might do in the budget because they can't tell them what they're going to do in the budget now because they don't even know. They haven't even published a summary economic statement. So all of that is really up in the air at the moment. But again, we're talking... Billions and billions, whatever way you look at it. The government is clearly mad for a deal. You know, I mean, if it's yeah. put, you know, 5% on the table and now it's indicating, well, you know, we might go, we might go back to the table. I mean, you, you know, it looks like I have no special knowledge of this, but, you know, if you're observing the negotiation from the outside, you say, well, you know, they're going to go to six, they're going to go to seven. I mean, if you were the unions, you'd you'd hold out, wouldn't you? Of course. Of course, the other aspect as well is that this, the original pay agreement is due to expire, is due to, to, to finish up at the end of the year. The government does not want to be in a position right now, I think, where they are renegotiating or negotiating an entirely new pay agreement. It's in their interest to extend this into next year and not to have to deal with this right now. So they're kind of on the back foot a little bit, I think, and they know that. Um, I guess the, the big question, the big sort of, the nub of the question between the two sides is what exactly is the rate of inflation? So once you land on that, then can you decide what exactly should be the pay increase? And that's the thing. Nobody can agree on how long this will go on at this rate for and what it will be in 2023. There's talk of 3% in 2023. We don't know that. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest aspects of the problem. I mean, some people on the outside might look at this and say, wow, 7% is an, is an incredible pay increase. Whereas people in the, on the union side naturally will say, well, if, if the government is saying this situation is going to last for the foreseeable future, then it's only right that we should have uh, an amount that matches that. It's finding the balance between that uh, in a way that kind of frees the pitch for the government to focus on, like I said, summary economic statement, which basically tells us what's available for the budget next year. Um, and then what the government wants to do, what the ministers want to do, is get to the summer recess, which is three and a half, four weeks away, uh, hope that the weather is all okay for the summer. Effectively, a huge amount of this is dependent on energy uh, and the cost of home heating. And then come back and there's going to be a real pinch and they're hoping to come in, save their firepower for the most important moment and then save the day. But you, I think we all know 
That's not how politics works. And that's not how the opposition will have it. There requires a lot of things uh, to bounce in their favour. Own, what do you make of the government's approach to the pay talks at present? Yeah, it's interesting just um, in terms of Jen's point, if, if you think of 2.5% a year, uh, wages are rising by an average of about 3% at the moment. And as I said, inflation is reckoned it's going to average at about 7% this year. So obviously there's a 4% squeeze on your real income with that increase. Um, so the government's open salary is 5%, opening salary is 5% over two years, or uh, 5% over two years, yes. So th- that's still kind of within the kind of scope of what we're seeing in the wider economy. Um, I was doing, uh, covering the ERSI's uh, latest uh, quarterly uh, bulletin, and they made an interesting point that when unemployment falls below 4%, and we're at a rate of about 4.7, you get then this rapid acceleration in wages. Now, we're not, we're not seeing that at all now, and uh, unemployment is above uh, 4%. But when you go below 4%, that's really when you're at risk of a wage price spiral in the Irish economy. Um, and that was an interesting the first time that they've actually mentioned that just in relation to where the employment, unemployment barometer is right at the moment. Jack, um, we're going to find out a lot about the government's bottle over the coming months, I think. You know, they face for the, for the first time since they took office, they face, you know, during the, the two years of COVID, money was, you know, there was su- sufficient borrowed money available that money wasn't really a, a, a problem in making budgetary decisions. There was sufficient resources there for everything the government wanted to do. And, um, you know, most people, yeah, even dismal scientists like Owen said that this was the right thing to do at the time. But we are returning to uh, a more... Con- more conventional sort of balance when it comes to the political economy of government and the sort of trade-offs that every government has had to make between what it would like to do and what it can do financially for lots of people. Th- those sort of choices are now going to inevitably assert themselves, aren't they? They are, yeah, but I don't, I don't see strong likelihood of any line ministers putting their hand up and saying, you know, I don't see Norma Foley saying we need fewer SNAs or teachers. I don't. No, they never do. I mean, one of the ways that, perhaps one of the flaws in which government is organised in this regard is that those decisions have to be taken by the centre, by the party leaders and by the twin finance ministers at the at the centre of government, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, and, and, and that's the, the point I was coming to, which is that, you know, at some point, uh, political choices have to be made, and they have to be made um, uh, by the leadership, uh, by the, the the kind of three leaders. Um, and if you look at the at the makeup of of the government, um, we spoke on this podcast previously in the not too distant past about um, the centrality of climate policy, which is a big and expensive thing, uh, and is in in some ways one of the engines of this government because it's it's why the Green Party is there. So you know there's there is a large chunk of money that is going to go on that um, housing policy is seen as you know the big 
social problem facing the government. So there's a, an enormous amount of money going to go on that. And then I think you have a bunch of competing priorities, everything from the kind of increase in SNAs, just to, to pick something at random, to, you know, uh, pick a winner. The defence stuff I was talking about earlier on, there's, there, there's going to be a lot of competition for what is left over, I think, once those kind of two... Um, Big uh, engines have been fed fuel. Third level, Micah. Funding, Micah. Exactly. You know, the list could go on and on. And, and and it's billions attached to each and every one of those. So I think you're right when you say we're going to find out a lot, a lot about its bottle, but we're also going to find out a lot about, you know, the political choices that it intends to make and its capacity to sell those. Because even though this government was forged at a time when budgetary constraints were not perceived or observed, uh, it will, I think, ultimately end up going back to the electorate with a, a hinterland or an immediate past a uh, couple of years where um, things have returned to a more normal state and it will have to explain the choices that that, that it made. Um, and, you know, there, here, here be monsters for them because um, every choice you make uh, risks disappointing, alienating uh, key stakeholders, key constituents. And, you know, potentially if, if they get it very wrong, weakening the the bonds that hold the government together. Well, Joe Biden once said, don't tell me what your priorities are. Show me your budget and I'll tell you what your priorities are. Poor Joe fell off his bike this week and it'll be interesting to see if the coalition can keep up on its bike over the coming weeks and months in the face of all these pressures. My thanks to Jennifer and Jack and especially to Owen Burke Kennedy for joining us this week. The podcast was produced by Suzanne Brennan and sound was by JJ Vernon. I'm Pat Leahy. Thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you again next week.